Hey everybody, it's Tommy Canale and welcome to Before the Lights Podcast, the show to find out how those in sports, music, and entertainment have made their mark. Let's get this one started. Go grab your coffee or your drink and then tell your family, friends, neighbors, and strangers about the show. Today, we're going to talk a lot about the mob. And to join me, I have a veteran print and broadcast journalist. He's an editor, a reporter, the administrator of the Las Vegas Mafia Facebook page, and also check out Mob Summit. He was a corporal in the U.S. Marine Corps and is currently the headmaster at Haas Hall Academy in Rogers, Arkansas. A mob historian, if I may say. Please welcome to the show, Larry Henry. Larry, first off, not only welcome to the show, but thank you for your service. Well, thank you, Tommy. I really appreciate it. And I'm honored to be on the show. I think you have a fantastic show and I really do appreciate it. And I love to talk about the mob. You're a Las Vegas guy. Yeah, I'm lo- looking forward to it and appreciate it. Before we get going, I want to say thank you to our new Patreon members. One is a former uh, guest and a PGA Tour veteran, Craig Barlow. So Craig, thank you for being a member of the Patreon group. Uh, Missy Meidel is a new member from the group and also Jeff Haraney. So thank you, you three, for joining the Patreon group. We'll talk about more about that later. Um, Larry, getting back into it, we're going to dive right in. You grew up in Louisiana, but where did your passion for journalism come from? It came from my roots, really, Tommy. Growing up in Louisiana, you know, you witnessed as a kid some racial injustices a lot, and you witnessed, uh, you know, I, I didn't get political corruption as a, as a, as a youngster, but uh, what it was really, but you saw things like Carlos Marcello in New Orleans. I grew up in Baton Rouge, and so you would see these things, and you wondered why why isn't somebody doing something about that? I didn't understand corrupt judges, corrupt prosecutors and all that stuff, but I came to appreciate uh, how wrong injustice is. And I came to appreciate, um, you know, people who abuse power, how wrong that is. And so that was always sort of ingrained in me, even growing up that that's what really got me interested. And then, um, after I got out of the Marine Corps, I was in graduate school, and I, I, I had always, especially in the Marine Corps, I got interested. I took an English class over in Okinawa, and I got really interested in writing, and that, that instinct in me was still ingrained about, you know, I've always been on, on the side of the underdog, on the side of those who are uh, oppressed, and so I really began to write a lot through this English class, and it got me interested, and then I, uh, then I uh, contacted a newspaper. Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I went to work as a police reporter covering the crime beat, and I've never looked back. I loved it. It was, uh, you know, Samuel Fuller, the, the, the film director, said when he was 12 years old, he walked into the New York Journal newsroom. He was taken up there by one of the newspaper delivery people. He'd gone to get his newspapers, and he said he walked into the newsroom, and it was the, the hubbub and the hustle and the bustle, and people yelling, copy boy, and the excitement of people going out to cover fires and crimes and all that. He's, he was only 12 and he goes home and, and, and someone said, do you want to be a copy boy? And he goes home and tells his mom. And she said, you, you still have to go to school. He said, I will. She said, where are you going to sleep? He said, in the newsroom. He said, I want to live there for the next 50 years of my life. So I get it. When, when you get, when, when you get ink in your veins, you get it. And that's what happened to me. I became a cop reporter in Tulsa, Oklahoma and never looked back. When you got that position, you had no experience in the field at all. So how, how did you land that position? I was an English major at LSU in, 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 in Baton Rouge. And so, you know, uh, uh, it, it was 
it, it was crazy. So, so I was in graduate school, and I, and I drove over to the newsroom in Tulsa out of the blue. Now, in those days, newspapers were really powerful and, you know, robust. And now, you know, we're, we're witnessing an era where newspapers are losing, uh, you know, some of their clout and so forth and uh, circulation base. But in those days, newspapers, you could pretty much get a job uh, all over the country, a newspaper. So I walked into the Tulsa World Newsroom, never had any experience, never worked for a newspaper. Usually you have to sort of grind your way up, you know, at smaller newspapers. And I met with the city editor, a great guy named Mike Jones. And Mike said, I'd never written a thing. And Mike said, listen, we need a nighttime cop reporter. You have to ride around with cops. You're going to be exposed to shootings and killings and all this other stuff. And I said, great, where do I sign up? And what it really came down to was, and I don't mean to make light clearly of killings and shootings. It, you know, what I'm saying is that sort of level of coverage, is crime coverage sure. is what people care about. So he said, he looked at my resume, he said, you'd been in the Marine Corps. A lot of cops, Tommy, as it turns out, probably still are, but certainly back then had been military veterans. This was not that long after the Vietnam War had ended, probably 10 years or so, five, 10 years. So a lot of the police uh, police officers who had come back from the military had joined police forces. And he figured, the city editor, that, you know, a night cop reporter who'd been in the been in the Marine Corps would be able to uh, would be able to connect with a lot of these police officers. And I'm telling you, man, I interviewed Nicholas Pelleggi for the Mob Museum. I know we'll talk about the Mob Museum in a little while, but it was really funny. The guy who wrote Wise Guy, which became the movie Goodfellas, he wrote the book Casino and co-wrote. Goodfellas and the movie Casino with Martin Scorsese, he, he, he had a similar experience to me because when he, he's 87 now, when he came up in the business, again, you could get newspaper jobs. Nowadays, you have to be, a, you know, this, this subgraduate from some distinguished gra, uh, journalism school, gone the days where real life experience was. So he said he was, uh, he had just graduated from Long Island University and a friend of his, he wanted to be a Hemingway, you know, uh, fiction writer. Okay. And a friend of his said, go down to Rockefeller Center, the AP's hiring. So he goes down thinking it's, Tommy, I don't know if you remember in Illinois or, 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 or Nevada, the A&P grocery store chain. I don't. It's a grocery store chain called A&P. He thought he was going to <laughs> interview for a job at the A&P grocery store chain. It was a tra- chain. It was the Associated Press. And so same thing. He walked in, they hired him, and he never looked back. That's awesome. 1996 to 98, you were the political editor for the Las Vegas Sun. And talk about being in Vegas at the right time when everything was really starting to really had already unraveled, so to speak, with the mob. If you would talk about first your position in Reno and how you got hooked up with soon to be governor. I don't mean to make parallels to my career in pledges. Clearly, he's had a fabulous career. In fact, Tony DiStefano, one of the best mob writers in the country and, and a journalist in, in New York, calls Nick Pelleggi a, a, a national treasure. But same thing. Pelleggi was telling me in this story I did on him for the Mob Museum. He happened to be he happened to have gotten in the business at the right time in New York. I had a similar experience, Tommy. When I got hired, I was working at the Tulsa newspaper. I'd worked there for about four years as the night cops reporter. Then I was a general assignment reporter, which means you just cover everything. Mm-hmm. But I've never had a job I don't think I've liked more, except at the Las Vegas Sun, uh, uh, than a cop reporter in Tulsa. So I go, I get a job. A friend of mine was working for the Sacramento Bee. 
And he knew that the newspaper in Reno was looking for somebody. So I went, uh, so he told them about me. They called me. I went out to Reno and just instantly connected with them. They needed a political reporter. Now, after I'd moved off from cops in Tulsa, I began to cover some politics in Oklahoma too. And I've always had, you, you can't be from Louisiana and not have an interest in politics. So I ended up being a political reporter in Reno right at the right time in the mid 80s. This was, you know, Spilatro and his brother were killed in 86 for another decade. Um, you know, there, you had a, a federal judge who was who was kicked off the bench around that time. Harry Claiborne down in down in Las Vegas, you had for another decade, even after the Spilatros were killed in, in 86. Fat Herbie Blitzstein and some other people who were associated with them. Blitzstein was killed in '96. So really, even in that decade, the whole mob. Were, and you know this, Tommy, because you're a Las Vegas guy. That whole mob world was still real active even into the '90s. So absolutely, yeah, I, mean, I was there, and I was covering politics, and I went down to Carson City and covered the legislature and got to know a lot of people. I'm not a uh, a partisan. I have uh, sources. My, my whole thing is I just want to get scoops. I don't really care where it comes from. So I've got sources on the right, sources on the left. And so, you know, being in, being in, uh, a political writer and legislative reporter in, in Nevada was extremely helpful to me because I got to know, you know, all the players politically who uh, later helped me as sources as, as, as time, you know, uh, as time went by. So you're working at Reno, you receive a tap on the shoulder by a gentleman and he says, uh, Hey, can I talk to you for a second? Yeah. yeah now, now, you know, Reno, you, you, you yes. know, you, your dad was up in Reno and, and down in Las Vegas, you know, that now the, the, one of the classic places in Las Vegas, one of the old school places on the strip near the, near where the river was is the old pepper mill. Still there. Still there. In Reno, and you know this, Tommy, in Reno, there's a, also a pepper mill. Now, it's a little bit bigger than the one in Las Vegas. They built a full-out hotel casino. In fact, Mario Puzo and Francis Ford uh, 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 Coppola wrote part of The Godfather at the pepper mill in, in Reno. So one day I get a call from the prosecutor in Clark County, a guy named Bob Miller. You know, it was, uh, can you meet me at the pepper mill? For, for a cup of coffee. I used to meet a good friend of mine who was a boxing writer named Rusty Rubin there all the time. Um, so I thought he wanted to talk to me about a story, about a news story, you know. Um, hopefully that he was the scoop that he was going to run for lieutenant governor. At that time, Richard Bryan, who was the governor, was going to run for the Senate. So there was a, there was a discussion that Bob Miller would run for lieutenant governor, then take over the governor's office when, if, if Richard Bryan won the the Senate seat. Richard Bryan was the governor at the time. I know you remember Governor Bryan, Senator mm-hmm. Bryan, Tommy. So, you know, I get to the pepper mill and he started talking to me about, about that. Now, I was one of those old school news guys who thought, you know, you, you don't go to work for the dark side. You don't, you don't. You know. But, you know, again, going back to what I was saying about growing up in Louisiana and seeing people abused by powerful forces, I, you know, to me, it seemed like a really good opportunity to work inside government in a way where you could help people who were sort of at the bottom rungs. And so it was kind of a, it was kind of a, the same thought process that's run throughout my whole career, wanting to help people, which is one thing I like about journalism still to this day, you know, you can give voice to the, for the powerless. So, yeah. So I went to work for Bob Miller. Um, His dad had Ross Miller, 
had been a uh, casino executive in Las Vegas at the Riff, Riviera, um, and at Slots of Fun. His partner at Slots of Fun, as you know, Tommy, Slots of Fun right next door to Circus. And then you had the Stardust. Right, which is now Resorts World. Now Resorts World. So he was partners with Carl Thomas at, at, at Slots of Fun. Now, Thomas ended up going to prison in a skimming uh, uh, a conviction with the, with the TROP and the Kansas City family and all that. But, yeah, so I went to work for, for Bob Miller when he was lieutenant governor. Then when he won the governor's office, what was projected happened. Governor uh, Brian won, and, and so Bob Miller was elevated to the governor's office, then won uh, uh, the governorship. So yeah, that's how that happened. It was a, it was a phone call you get, you think a source is going to give you a story. And the next thing you know, your life is going through some changes. So you can see with your background, and this is why I wanted to start here, and then we're going to switch gears here to the mob, because I know everybody wants to hear mob stories. Yeah. You can see the background where you started with, you know, as being a cop reporter, and then you get in the political side, and then you end up in Reno and end up with the governor. And that's when all the mafia stuff is really starting to hit home. Um, hard in the Vegas area. Where did your appreciation start to go like backwards? I mean, was it from when you were a cop reporter that you started to really learn more about the mob as you were going? Or did the passion for learning more about the mob start when you got into Las Vegas and Reno? Even back to my growing up in Louisiana with a mobster like Carlos Marcello. You know, I've always been, it's always intrigued me to, to as, as, as Scott Bitchie, who's a mob historian and mob writer in Tampa, says, you know, to understand the overworld, the legitimate, you have to understand the underworld because so much of the overworld is controlled by the underworld. Dan Moldea, one of my um, uh, one of the most esteemed mob writers and, and, and journalists, investigative reporters in the country. I'm paraphrasing, but he said something to to the effect that there can't be organized crime without political corruption. So I've always been interested in that intersection of crime and politics and how can organized crime exist aren't prosecutors and judges and people like that supposed to address those failures in society that that crime exists like that and of course there was no bigger hot spot than las vegas in the 80s and 90s 70s 80s and 90s you know and, and legendary reporters came out of that environment the ned days the george knapps tom Hawley. Channel 3 in Las Vegas, Jeff Schumacher at the Mob Museum, Jeff Burbank, Jane Morrison, a lot of people in that era who are still around, by the way. That's, that's one of the good things about Las Vegas. There are a lot of Jeff Garriman, Steve Sibelius, a lot of those reporters who were a part of that transition. But anyway, that's where my interest came from. It just, you know, when I worked for the governor, I went to Las Vegas all the time. And, um, you know, I just got to know a lot of the people and talking to them. Grant Sawyer, who was the governor, one of the ones who really led the charge to get Frank Sinatra out of the Cal Neva up at Lake Tahoe where G and Connor would go. You know, I would talk off the record with people like Grant Sawyer and with a lot of the hotel executives who were there then and a lot of the mob people. And I just got real interested in how could that happen and how did it make Las Vegas such a, such a, uh, uh, a battleground for all of that. Yeah, for sure. Touched on the Mob Museum a couple times. And for those people that may have not been to Las Vegas or have been here and aren't familiar with the Mob Museum, it's located downtown. I highly suggest the next time you come, you put it very high on your to-do list, especially if you're listening to this podcast. Hopefully, you know what the Mob Museum is. It's really the official um, National Museum of Organized Crime and Law Enforcement 
And it's the old U.S. post office that they've turned into a multi-floor museum that I, once again, say get connected with it. Go to themobmuseum.com. You can check that out. Larry writes a monthly column for them as well that you can catch online. They're really good. There's a lot of topics. And when you talk about the mob, the topics go forever. And we're going to kick off some mob stories here. But before we get to Vegas, I know a lot of people out there always think of Chicago and New York and Vegas when it comes to the mob. One thing they probably don't hear about is Hot Springs, Arkansas, where kind of the mob really did, I wouldn't say originate, but there was a lot of mob action there in the Depression era. Huge. Just south of where I'm located now. Absolutely, Tommy. It was, you know, keep in mind, Las Vegas Gambling wasn't casino. You could play poker, non-bank games, but but casino gambling was 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 legalized in 1931 in Nevada um, after the, after it was outlawed in 1911. So, and 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 really, Tommy Las Vegas was a, a a small, very small town. I mean, Reno was even bigger in that era than Las Vegas. So before all that became huge like it is today. And as you know, better than anybody, you know, Las Vegas is a mega city now. I mean, the Golden Knights and the Raiders, there was a time when no one would even thought about putting teams like that in Las Vegas with that level of of credibility that a town has. But Hot Springs, small town nestled in the Washita Mountains, just southwest of Little Rock, which is right in the middle of the state. Arkansas is like a box. Looks like okay. a box, and right in the middle, kind of a square box. Right in the middle of it is Little Rock. Just southwest of that is is Hot Springs. Now, be, again, because of political corruption, um, the police department, sheriff's office. In fact, in the eighteen hundreds, late eighteen hundreds, the sheriff's office and police department had a big shootout, but among themselves, the two law enforcement agencies over the control of the gaming <laughs> you know, industry left five cops and sheriff's people dead in the street. So it's always been a real contentious. So, so into so so you go into the into into the uh, you know from the eighteen hundreds and the nineteen hundreds wide open, wide open casinos in Hot Springs, a small town to this day, wide open prostitution, illegal gaming and, and prostitution, but wide open. And all of the big mobsters from that era stop me on this list, but but because I'll go on forever. Dutch <laughs> Schultz, Bugsy Siegel, uh, Frank Costello. Frank Costello was even rumored in the fifties. He was thinking the prime minister of the mob was thinking of moving down to Hot Springs. He denied it in a letter to the to, to a newspaper. But they all had interest in some of those casinos. They went down there all the time. Lucky Luciano, the guy who really created the, the current commission that runs uh, uh, the, the the La Cosa Nostra throughout the country in nineteen in the nineteen thirties. He left New York. He was up on a, on a, uh, on a prostitution charge, prostitution rackets charge in New York, fled to hot springs where everybody fled. Even the non-mob types fled to hot springs. You know, you'd get babyface Nelson and pretty, pretty boy. Everybody went to hot springs because they were protected there. Luciano goes down to uh, hot springs, stops in Cleveland, meets up with a singer named Gail Ova, takes Russian uh, a singer, takes, they, they, they end up at the Arlington, which is still in business in Hot Springs. He, so, so, so two New York detectives in Hot Springs on a non, they weren't even looking for him there. They were, they were looking for another bad guy. They happened to see Lucky Luciano strolling down the street with the chief of detectives. 
they end up arresting him. He gets <laughs> he gets sent back to New York and, you know, it ends up being convicted. But that just goes to show you what Hot Springs was like. And so a lot of people, Tommy, earned their stripes, really, in gaming in Hot Springs and then moved on to Las Vegas. As you know, it was only mid-40s. Now, there were casinos from 1931 to 1945. There was a, there was a vice cop from L.A. who was dirty. He opened some places. But really, the, the mob, Bugsy Siegel, Mo Sedway, that group, they really got started in Las Vegas in 1945. So up until then, really, Hot Springs was the playground for the mob. Now, there's, there's an effort to have a revival in Hot Springs. There was a, uh, there was a, there's a nightclub called The Vapors. Um, in fact, a new book has just come out on this. Uh, Tony Bennett unveiled his his uh, 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 left my heart in San Francisco there. That too was a big place. All the big acts went through there. The McGuire sisters and Hot Springs. In fact, Sam Giancana, the boss of the Chicago mob, would meet Phyllis McGuire down in Hot Springs. So yeah, Hot Springs, Tommy, was very dynamic. To this day, the Oakland Racetrack, which is one of the prelim races. Uh, uh, for the for the Kentucky Derby it is held in Hot Springs, and they just allowed casino gambling to expand down there. So they're trying to revive some of that without the mob. Revive <laughs> in 1957, the Tropicana Hotel opens up in Las Vegas. Still there to the day, same location. It's changed its look probably more times than I I, I can yeah. remember, but same location. And actually, Larry, you can expand on this, but the Tropicana was one of the first places, if I'm not mistaken, that really had a tie from organized crime to Las Vegas. And it all happened on an attempted hit on Frank Costello. And they found a piece of paper, a couple pieces of paper in his pocket that happened to have the numbers from the take from the Tropicana. Is that, is that true? Absolutely true. 1957. And by the way, let me, uh, urge, if you would, your viewers and listeners to go to Uncle Frank's Place. It's an online site run by a friend of mine, Casey McBride, who is the national expert on Frank Costello and has a lot of this. Yeah, Frank Costello, who was the prime minister of the uh, of the uh, uh, mafia nationwide based in New York. I mean, he was the he was the big guy. The trop opened um, when it first opened, it was, it was, you know, tainted with mob influence, some new Orleans interest. Johnny Roselli was involved in the early days. In fact, had a gift shop, Johnny Roselli being the uh, mob representative of, of Chicago of the Chicago handsome Johnny Roselli, they call him. So for even from the early days, Tommy, yeah, the trop was mobbed up. Now it's not now. I don't want to imply that the trop is sure. still mobbed up, but yeah, from early so 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 Frank Costello, as you know, um, one of the things that makes the whole mob world so interesting to the public and to all of us, me and, and you and everybody else, is you know the the, the way they deal with um, problems sometimes is by taking out somebody that they think is a problem. So Frank Costello in the lobby of his apartment, in New York, guy walks up, turned out to be a guy named Chin Gigante who became a mob boss himself. Now, Frank Costello didn't snitch on him. He denied, you know, he wouldn't say who it was. Fires a shot, grazes his head. It may have even entered a little bit. I'm not sure exactly, but it, but it didn't kill him. Um, and so when investigators were looking at that hit attempt, it, it didn't kill him. And it ended up making him realize he probably should retire, <laughs> which he did. But, in his pocket, Tommy, you're right. In his pocket was a note with that week's winnings at the trop. 
uh, down, as you know, toward the, you know, at that time, Highway 91, the strip um, toward Los Angeles. At that time, the trop was way out on the strip by the airport. Um, the, the swank place in that era. Still, I still love the trop, by the way. And I'll stay there when I go to Las Vegas. But in Frank Costello's pocket was that the wind from, for, from I, th- I think, a week at the trop, it was like 600 something thousand dollars and how much money would be portioned, uh, uh, you know, uh, given to different factions, uh, organized crime factions. So, yeah, so, so, so that was a, a big wake-up call for federal investigators, too. Wait a minute, maybe there's something going on yeah. in the desert. And, and if you would, Larry, can you expand for my listeners on how the tie between Vegas and the Chicago outfit happened? And it happened early on. I mean, I think some people may think that it was, you know, Lefty Rosenthal and Tony Spilatro just because of the movie Casino, but the mob was here way before that part of the outfit started sending people out here. Yeah, what, what, what happened was it was decided by the powers that be. And, you know, really the New York families controlled a lot of those decisions. Who would, who would, who would have which part of the country and all that? Carlos Marcelo down in New Orleans had this Dallas and Hot Springs and the Gulf. So they would sort of divide things up and you couldn't go into those territories without permission. Frank Costello, by the way, worked out a slot machine deal in Louisiana with Carlos Moss. So they had that whole relate. Now, New Orleans, I'm, I'm sorry, Las Vegas was a wide open city. It was declared an open city. And so factions began to move in and sort of establish themselves like Hot Springs, by the way, which was an open city. In fact, you couldn't kill anybody in Hot Springs who was a rival. They saw rivals down there and they were safe. Similar situation in Las Vegas. It was an open city. You had, you know, Bugsy Siegel, Ben Siegel ran the race wire, the race results, uh, horse race results from around the country transmitted by wire. He had that in Los Angeles and Las Vegas. Had a guy named Mo Sedway from New York, a big sports book guy, helping him with it out of Las Vegas. And that's how they really began to get their footing in Las Vegas. Again, in 1945, um, a group of mobsters like Ben Siegel, Mo Sedway, um, Gus Greenbaum, I think, was in on this. They they bought a, a percentage of the El Cortez, which is still in downtown Las Vegas mm-hmm. in 1945. So that faction got involved. The Chicago faction got involved through some of their representatives, like Johnny Roselli, who had gone to Hollywood to sort of, as did Ben Siegel, to sort of extort the movie industry. So that's how Chicago got in. New York had their had their faction in and had some casinos. Detroit had some casinos. They had uh, uh, the dune. Um, St. Louis had the dunes and Detroit had, I think, a piece of the rib. Houston had a piece of the sands, as did other mob factions. There's a book called The Greenfelt Jungle, published in 1963, which to this day in the back of it has, you know, who had ownership of casinos back then. And so different mob factions, Tommy, Detroit, Milwaukee, Kansas City. Kansas City had the trop. Yeah, because they had people on the inside. So different cities had different pieces of different casinos. Um, Chicago ended up uh, with Argent Corp, which was the Stardust, the Fremont, the Marina and the the Hacienda. So, yeah, that's how it happened. They just all sort of had a piece of casinos. And that's how Chicago got their foot in in their casinos, which ended up being big, big, uh, big uh, skimming convictions down the road, by the way. Right. And that's where I want to go next. For those listening, we're not really going in chronological order. We're kind of jumping around here, just kind of telling some some mob stuff. But that's the fun part, I think, about talking about the mob. 
and we talked about Kansas City, and things started. It's weird when I look back about how things happened to Vegas. I mean, Frank Costello almost gets murdered, and they find out they find the, the piece of paper in his pocket. And then in Kansas City, the FBI is just, you know, they're looking into uh, some killings and they're not really and they put a wiretap inside of the Villa Capri Pizzeria to try and find more about these killings. And they got more than they bargained for. All of a sudden they found out there's a whole nother world going on in Las Vegas with this organized (laughs) crime. And it has to do with skimming. And I'll let you take it from there. Let me Tommy, you're the best mob historian out. I mean, seriously. Good friend of mine named Gary Jenkins. And, and let me, if I may, if I may drive people to his website, sure. Gangland Wire. He does a podcast and a website, Gangland Wire. Gary was, in fact, Gary is mentioned in Nicholas Pelleggi's book, Casino. Gary was a loss, uh, excuse me, not Las Vegas, a Kansas City intelligence police officer during that era in the 70s. And Gary has a lot of this info too. But what happened was, yeah, yeah, it was up. Uh, and Gary was a part of this investigation. Kansas City's always been a real violent mob town. I know I'm bouncing around from Hot Springs to, to New York to Chicago. But if you think geographically, Las Vegas out west, an open city, back in the Midwest, there was a lot of real active mob activity, very active, the Chicago's, the Milwaukee's. But one of them, which was huge, and, and you summed it up, Tommy, was, was Kansas City. In Kansas City, Throughout the years, there have been bombings and shootings, and it's been a very violent mob city. Two mob factions were going at each other in the 70s. Yes, at the Villa Capri, which has since been demolished. At the Villa Capri, the FBI, a guy named Bill Owsley, who's still alive, has written some great books. Open City is one of them about mobsters in our midst, about the mob in Kansas City, FBI special agent in Kansas City. They planted a bug. They had two FBI agents, a man and a woman, acting like they were making out outside the Villa Capri one night. Snuck, so they so they, so they would try to be as big as <laughs> snuck in the Villa Capri, bugged a back table, a little pizza joint, beer joint, bugged a back table where the Savella crime family higher-ups would sit and talk. So they began to use these nicknames. They called Lefty Rosenthal an Italian word for crazy. So suddenly the FBI is, is like, whoa, we're still going to look into this mob war in Kansas City. But look what else has been exposed. These guys, this Savella mob, this Savella crime family is, is obviously having some big influence with the trop, especially. And let's start looking into that. So that opened up the entire investigation into skimming between that ran a skimming pipeline, Tommy, that ran from the trop, the Tropicana to Kansas City, which then blew up into other investigations. A lot of surveillance phone calls that were that were uh, tapped. Uh, Gary Jenkins on his Gangland Wire website has that actual audio of actual mobsters talking about it, as does, by the way, Mobbed Up, which is a great podcast by the RJ, the Las Vegas Review Journal yes. and the Mob Museum has some of that audio, which was really interesting because you're listening to these mobsters talking about all these Las Vegas, uh, uh, you know, skim operations. So that's how that happened. Yeah. They, 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 they learned through that audio that the skim was going on in Las Vegas, especially at the trial. How long, Larry, do you think the investigation was overall? Because there was a lot of casinos that got brought into this investigation and it went on for, for many years. How long do you think that really, that investigation took place? 
Well, even well before, even well before the, the, the Tropicana scam, you know, when, when John Kennedy was elected president in 1960, with the help of Sam Giancana, the Chicago mob boss, um, some of the mobsters were disappointed in him naming his brother, Robert, as attorney general, because Robert had been a crime fighter and went after the mob, mm-hmm. including in Las Vegas. Um, so even before the revelation on this Villa Capri, Kansas City wiretap, uh, the government was 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 heavily infiltrating uh, mob uh, skimming operations in Las Vegas. This just sort of blew it open, especially this being the 1970s uh, uh, wiretap at the Villa Capri in Kansas City, sort of blew open that part of it, which then led to big investigations and convictions. Now, one of the things that made that Kansas City, so, so, so backing up before Kansas City, investigations were going on. Um, but one of the things that really highlighted what happened in Kansas City was the movie Casino. Nicholas Pelleggi, the journalist from New York who wrote the book, um, had, had ended up talking to Frank Collada, who's still alive, by the way. Frank Collada's 81, just got COVID-19 and has recovered from it. Um, and then Frank Collada turned him on to Lefty Rosenthal. And then Lefty Rosenthal told him about the love triangle with Tony Spilatro and his wife. So that became the movie Casino. Well, that a big part of that book was the skim that ended up going to mobsters back in the Midwest. So that's one reason that part of the skim and the mob influence got a lot of attention because it became a part of that movie. Speaking of the movie, how much validity is there to the fact that Lefty Rosenthal was actually an informant for the FBI? Jane Morrison, Jane Ann Morrison, who's a fantastic reporter, uh, retired now. She's on this mobbed up podcast at the RJ and the mob museum have, I, I, I keep using to, to those who don't know Las Vegas, the RJ is the Review Journal Morning newspaper. But Jane N. Morrison's uh, uh, sources in the FBI uh, revealed to her, and she reported this years ago, that Lefty Rosenthal was a was a as they call snitch rat, whatever informant for the FBI. As Jane Ann reported, so was his wife Jerry, the Sharon Stone character in the movie. They both were FBI informants. Now. One of the things that raised suspicion about Lefty Rosenthal and for listeners and viewers, Tommy, as you know better than anybody, Lefty Rosenthal was a bookmaker um, who came. He was he was an associate of the Chicago outfit, which is what they call the Chicago Mafia, dating back from the Al Capone prohibition days up through at that time, Sam Giancana and others. Lefty Frank Lefty Rosenthal. The mob installed him in the in, in the Argent Corp casinos, the Hacienda, which is gone. It's now where the Mandalay Bay is, sadly, the site of the shooting several years ago. The marina, which the MGM Grand, the the not the old MGM Grand where Bally's is, the newer, the green, where all the fights are nowadays. Right. The marina was incorporated into that. Fremont still exists downtown. And as you said, the Stardust was demolished and is now Resorts World. Lefty Rosenthal gets installed. Uh, to oversee the skim at the Argent Corp casinos, those four casinos, and was really operating mainly out of the stardust with a real heavy hand and, you know, was fronting for the mob. Alan Glick was was the San Diego businessman. He had been in Vietnam, in the, I think, as a helicopter pilot in the Army. He was the, you know, quote, legitimate, legitimate businessman, but the mob controlled that. And that's what Lefty Rosenthal did. I mean, he was so 
when 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 Nicholas Pelleggi began to talk, Lefty didn't want to talk. He was down in Florida by that time. But the fact that he was never called before a grand jury, all these other people were in, were indicted, were convicted. Why wasn't Lefty even under under the gun for any sort of uh, uh, conviction or anything? His car right on Sahara where Marie, I think it's a Larry Flint hustler story. Now it was a Tony Roma's <laughs> Tony place. Roma's. It was a total. Somebody blew up his car. So he left, went to California and Florida. He didn't want anything to do with it. So Nicholas Pelleggi, uh, it began to be known that a movie and a book were going to be made about, about that era. Rosenthal gets in touch with Pelleggi and said, listen, I hear Robert De Niro might play me. Is there any way I can meet De Niro? So De Niro flies down to Florida. Everybody hears that De Niro is at Rosenthal, the pool guy, Rosenthal's daughter. Everybody shows up to see De Niro. That and a $500,000 consulting fee is what got Rosenthal involved. So, so, so Rosenthal's act, version of that story is what became mainly the, the movie Casino. So, you, you know, it was reported in the book by a journalist using the real names, the name of the stardust. When they transitioned it over to the movie, they used a different name for the casino and a different name for the characters for legal reasons, because you would have had to pay everybody a percentage whose name you used. Sure. So that's how Lefty, you know, that was Lefty's involvement and Lefty's, you know, Lefty's, Lefty's role as an informant wasn't really exploited in that movie. But over time, when he's the only guy who doesn't go down and isn't even, he isn't jailed, isn't, isn't, isn't charged with a crime, who was right in the middle of all that, you have to begin to wonder, was he an informant? And as Jane Ann Morrison, who was a columnist and reporter for the RJ Review Journal, her FBI, great sources, her FBI sources told her that he was. And you wonder for how long that he's actually an informant. Well, according to, I don't remember who told me this, whether it was Nicholas Pelleggi or somebody else, according to what somebody told me not that long ago, I think it was Pelleggi, it went back to his Chicago maker, supposedly a bookmaking genius. He would sit out in the outfield at Wrigley Field. And you know, as an Illinois guy, you know, Wrigley Field gets those, gets those uh, bleacher, you know, gets the, gets the crowd on the bleachers and they're, they're betting back and forth over the bleachers. <laughs> it's not, and you know this, Tommy, as a, as a, uh, as a, as a Chicago area guy. There's probably some illegal activity going just, on at Wrigley Field. Just a little bit, nothing major. <laughs> Although I was watching the Cubs and the White Sox last night in an empty stadium, and it did it was it was a little bit different. The bleachers, but Lefty would sit up in those bleachers and take bets over here. Is this going to be a ball? Is this going to be a strike? And he just had you know clearly a lot of illegal activity going on. You know, he bought off different jockeys allegedly and so forth. You know, he, so his genius may have even had some illegal uh, input. But anyway. So then he goes to North Carolina. There's a conviction in North Carolina, goes down to Miami, and then out to Las Vegas in the 60s. So according to what I've, I've been told, again, I don't remember exactly who told me this, a journalist, maybe Nick Pelleggi, but according to what I've been told, it, it, it even went back in, into those days that he was helping authorities uh, with some inside information. One of the uh, talk about the mobbed up podcast, and I recommend people listening to that. Even you can catch back up; it's it's a great series um, done by um, Reed Redman from the Review Journal. But there's a thing that's in the um, intro that's part of the story, and it cracks me up every time. Is they talk about Lefty's car being blown up, and somebody says, "What's going on?" And they said, 
they're trying to kill me. And they said, who's trying to kill you? And then he said, he shut up. <laughs> so you know, That makes me crack up every time. But um, going forward, Larry, you know, Tony Spilatro comes out here. And not that there wasn't some killings going on in Las Vegas prior to that. But it just seems like once Spilatro hit the ground and got in Las Vegas, the violence just turned up tenfold. And I think for me personally, I think that was... The, a big decline because it brought so much attention to what was going on. And not that it wasn't going on before, but it brought too much attention to the limelight, I think. Yeah. So in the seventies, when, when, when Spilatro got to, got to, got to town, Tommy, now before then mobsters, uh, you know, we talked about the Ben Siegels who took over the construction of the Flamingo from a Los Angeles newspaper publisher called, Billy Wilkerson, he ran the Hollywood Reporter, which was kind of a scandal sheet back then. Hollywood Reporter still exists, by the way. It's more of an inside the movie industry publication. But there have always been mobsters down there um, with the casinos, um, you know, from the Ben Siegels to the, to the uh, uh, you know, Jimmy Hoffa and the Teamsters got involved in some loans up and down the strip. So, but then, but, but it always been a little more um, low-key involvement, Um then Spilatro comes in 1971, um, had been in trouble in, in, in Chicago with some suspected murders, was a real violent guy. He was the Joe Pesci character in Casino. Gets to Las Vegas, has a, has a gift shop in Circus Circus, which, as you know, is still op- in operation on the Strip, um, moves his operation over to the Gold Rush on, on right off of the Strip on West Sahara, no longer in existence, uh, has since been torn down near where the Golden Steer Steakhouse still, still is in existence. And then brings a level of violence to Las Vegas, Tommy, you're right, that had not been a part of the scene. As we talked in, in Hot Springs in Las Vegas, it was kind of an open city where you didn't you know, take out people who were opposed to you and all that stuff. Game changes with Spilatro. You have killings. You have, he oversaw a group of uh, street rackets and burglars guys named the Hole in the Wall Gang, which was named that because they literally busted holes in the walls of residences and businesses. Frank Collada, who does the Coffee with Collada YouTube show, 81 years old, as we mentioned a moment ago. That group brought a new level of violence. And, and, And candidly, you know, created an era in Las Vegas where Las Vegas, and you know this, Tommy, I mean, Las Vegas, world-class city now. At that time, though, Las Vegas, because of all of that mob activity, which was very violent and, no pun intended, very explosive, you know, Las Vegas was seen as kind of a, you know, kind of a scuzzy place, mobbed-up place. There were a lot of jokes on, you know, you see it on Johnny Carson, although Carson played Las Vegas a lot. You know, you'd see sort of Las Vegas being beat up as a, as a, as a, as, as kind of a, kind of a grind joint town that the mob controlled. So, so, so that, that image did some damage to Las Vegas for a while. And I want to shift gears here a little bit. I'm still in the mob, getting away from mobsters and getting into reporters and talk a little bit about a gentleman by the name of Ned Day. Ned was an investigative reporter with the Las Vegas Review Journal and, and News uh, Channel 8 TV. In 1987, he had a series called Mob on the Run. In 1986, his car gets firebombed. And then in 87, 
he's on vacation in Hawaii and has a heart attack while scuba diving. And many people feel like that today, that that was a mob hit. What do you know about the Ned Day situation or did you know Ned? I did. I knew Ned. Uh, uh, I wasn't good friends with him. I mean, I knew him at that time um, working for the governor and and when I was at the newspaper up in Reno. Um, What happened was uh, extremely colorful person himself. He from Milwaukee, his dad was a big time bowler on the cover of national magazines, also named Ned Day. Got involved in some illegal activity. He had fallen on some, uh, the dad had fallen on some hard times because of, uh, you know, some drinking and gambling. And one of his pro shops in Milwaukee became sort of an illegal bookmaking operation. He was under investigation, just had a tough time toward the end. Ned got involved with one of the mob bosses up, a big mob boss in Milwaukee, Frank Balistrieri, the mad bomber, they called him. Ned worked in some of his strip joints and some of his bars. You know, Ned was kind of a runner and bartender and married Miss Nude International. Then he later married a stripper who was murdered by one of her Johns while Ned was married to her in Kansas City. I mean, in uh, Milwaukee, very colorful life, kind of a, uh, you know, dark side of, 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 of Milwaukee runs into a journalism professor at the university of Milwaukee, a uh, university of Wisconsin, Milwaukee, who gets him interested in journalism and gets him interested in writing. So it's sort of saving. He's always been a scrappy guy moves at the age of 31 to Las Vegas, knew from Milwaukee um, some of those underworld figures like the best reporters, Nick Pelleggi, Ned Day. They have sources on both sides of the law. They've got law enforcement sources. We talked about Jane Morrison with her FBI sources. She had, you know, like, like all great reporters, people on all sides of the law. Well, Ned did that. He came to Las Vegas, had sources who were under underworld guys and gals, and also had law enforcement sources. Went to work for the Valley Times, which was a really scrappy paper up in North Las Vegas. Got involved in some issues with Lefty Rosenthal and, you know, uh, but began to really shine a light. Ned Day comes into town and gets a column and just really began to pound on the mob. Pounded on um, Tony Spilatro, called him, I think, uh, I don't know, some derogatory name. I, I don't want to repeat it, but so... Ned Day goes after the mob, does this series, Mob on the Run, which to this day, I think, is is one of the best things that's been done about the mob in Las Vegas. To this day, it's really relevant. You know, he walks out, he tr- wore a trench coat. Yeah. And, you, you know, and, and, and as, a, as a guy from the upper Midwest, you know, I, I grew up in Louisiana. I've got an accent. People have accents from different parts of the country. you got the New York. Ned had that Milwaukee street guy accent and wore the trench coat and had the cigarette going. But, you know, <laughs> so... Ned comes out in the beginning of this video, right there where you, on the corner where now the Bellagio would be, where, where the dunes was. He's shooting over his shoulder. You can see the, the flamingo and what was in the Barbary Coast. And so, yeah, so Ned, Ned came to Las Vegas and just did some real hard-hitting mob stuff. As a result, and by the way, maybe one of, it was an era where reporters would be well-known. You know, Ned moved from the Valley Times to the, to the Review Journal, to Channel 8, um, and was a, a little bit of a celebrity himself. You'd see him at the Thomas and, and Mac where UNLV, as you know, Tommy, before the Golden Knights came to town and now the Raiders are in town. And, you know, the Running Rebels are still big. But in that era, the Running Rebels were everything. They were the show. They were the show. You'd go to the Thomas and Mac, as you know, as a, as a, as a guy who – and you remember Gucci Rowe? Gucci Rowe. <laughs> yep. You'd see all the all – the, 
well, you know, Ned Day would come into Thomas and back for for a, for a Rebels game. Everybody, so he was a he was a he was a celebrity journalist in a lot of ways, real hard nosed, shoe leather, scrappy reporter. His car gets firebombed. He had, I think, some golf clubs in the back. He wasn't in the car at the time. Sent the signal, which gets back to what you said, Tommy, about that era in Las Vegas with the car bombings and the shootings. It was just a rougher period of time. An attorney, that former FBI guy, his car was blown up downtown. You know, you had Benny Binion in the middle of that. So allegedly, by the way. So, so, so Ned Day's car gets blown up. So because he was so aggressive in reporting on the mob, there was, there was suspicion. He goes to Hawaii um, for vacation. Um, I had filed a column from there. Now, George Knapp, great reporter, investigative reporter, still at Channel 8. Yeah. George also does Coast to Coast AM on the weekends. George knows a lot. George was really good friends with Ned Day. There's a lot of stuff on the Channel 8 site, stories that George has done about Ned. Ned goes to Hawaii. Um, yeah, and in, in, in a scuba swimming incident, uh, died. And so anytime especially in that era, Tommy, anytime um, suspicion arises about a tough reporter investigating the mob, only a decade before that, down in Phoenix, a reporter's car got blown up and he was killed and looking into some organized crime stuff. So anytime that happens, you, you wonder whether, whether the mob was involved. To this day, I got, I got a uh, direct message on Facebook not that long ago from a very respected Longtime reporter in Las Vegas, can't say who obviously, but who was who was telling me some things that may have may have uh, you know led this reporter to believe there may have been some some skullduggery involved. So even to this day, there's some suspicion. Now, the autopsy report labels it an accidental death, so so there was no suspicion officially, right. It's, but it does it does encapsulate that era. I mean, yeah, it, was, it does. <laughs> it was a wild era, Tommy. In in your opinion, Vegas better now or better then? I love both, man. I went to a party with a bunch of reporters. I was working for Las Vegas Sun. I was their political editor, and I went to a party at the Sands right before they imploded it with a bunch of reporters back in one of those small cabanas that had one of those small private pools where the Frank Sinatras and the Dean Martins, the Rat Pack, that was their sort of their, their private enclave back then. You know, I love both. I love old Vegas. There's still some remnants of old Vegas, the Trop Circus Circus, uh, the Fremont downtown, where, by the way, uh, a woman named Ida Devine would take the skim from the Fremont to Meyer Lansky in, 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 in Miami. She was from Hot Springs. But so there still are some places in Las Vegas where you can get a taste of old Las Vegas. But, you know, the truth is, and, and you know this as a guy, you're, you're, you're one of the people who lived the transition from old to new Las Vegas, not, you know, with so many newcomers, not yeah. many people have seen that transition. I love them both. I think it, it would be really hard to compete if you'd left the sands up, if you'd left the dunes up, if you'd left these mobbed up places, which now have a lot of interest. I don't think they could have competed with the modern mega resorts. And, and I, and, you know, to, to, to be candid, you know, I see a lot about New Las Vegas that I like a lot. It's a major city with a lot to offer. Go on to the dollar ninety nine buffets. Yes, they and are. My friends and I used to feast on. Gone is the twenty five cent craps table at Slots of Fun that I used to play on and get the free popcorn. Those days are gone. But yeah. there's a lot about that. 
How do you feel about new and old Las Vegas? You've seen them both. Um, kind of where you are. I have an infinity for the old Las Vegas just because, you know, I grew up. I mean, I grew up in a, in a small town in Illinois called Streeter, and then my family moved out here. I was still in high school at the time, and I basically grew up in high school on the Strip and on Fremont Street, <laughs> you know, not being 21, but that's kind of where I grew up and, and kind of got thrown into the wolves about things that I had never witnessed before being from a small town and, and then saw that. But, you know, they both, I have an infinity for the old Vegas. I really like the Sands in, I like the way the old Strip looked. To me, when I see pictures of the old strip, it just brings back really good memories. I love the resorts and what they have to offer. And there's something at every resort for somebody. But I really like the look of that old Vegas feel. And it just kind of brings back those memories. And when you talked about gone in high school, as I was saying, we would go wait till 11 o'clock or midnight, whatever it was, and go to the basement of Binion's to get the $1.99 steak and egg special at the cafe, which is now gone as well. But there was a lot of things back then that are gone now. And there's still some people that come to Vegas and they can't believe the transformation. If you haven't been here in two or three years, it changes so much like resorts worlds popping up and, you know, there's different things. Um, circus popping up in downtown Las Vegas where the old Las Vegas club was. And, you know, gone is, is mermaids and all, all those places that were on Fremont. So, I like what's happening to Vegas from what it's offering. I just like the look and feel of the old Vegas. A couple of things, Larry. How, how did you come up with the idea or did you come up with the idea for the Las Vegas Mafia History Facebook page? And how long has that been going on? Man, I love it. It's a lot of fun. It's, it's you know, so in addition to my role at the school, um, you know, I never stopped being a journalist and I never stopped you know, I've always, I've always loved those roles, even at the school, you know, putting out the school paper and the school lit mag and all that stuff. So I began to write about the mob on, uh, on a website, Ringside Report, a guy named Brad Berkwood had asked me if I wanted to, wanted to write for him. So I got involved with that and began to write um, about it. And so, you know, I just thought, you know how when you go onto Facebook, Tommy, there are different interests, whether you're a quilter or a hot rod uh, person or a vintage Mustang person or whatever you are, a Raiders Nation fan or, a, you know, gold, whatever. There was no, the best site in the world for mob news, in my view, is, is the Mob Museum site. Um, but there was no Facebook group where people could get into a group and talk about all that. So I just started the Las Vegas Mafia History Facebook group and have had a lot of fun with it because you get a lot of journalists. One of the things that had happened that I had seen was on social media and in a lot of mob Facebook groups, there's a lot of misinformation, a lot of people putting their opinion out about what may have happened. And, and I just thought, you know, there was really no no place for, 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 for to, to really sort of vet what was accurate and all of that. And that's one reason I wanted to start it so we could have conversations about what may or may not have happened and just had a lot of fun with it. Like even, even, even now there's a big conversation going on with um, a relative of one of the Spalatros and a bunch of other people just, just, just discussing different things. So yeah, that's how that got started. And I've got one called mob summit too, because I started, I started a little, a little group. I just wanted a little get together, an annual get together, a different mob journalist and mob enthusiast. So I started a little mini convention thing. Never, never set out for it to be a convention, just a gathering. 
um, called the Mob Summit, which now we were going to do it in Kansas City this summer, but with COVID, we didn't do it. So it's online too. So yeah, that's how that got started. That's Just awesome. a place for people to congregate and talk about it. Yeah, I like both sites. And how many members are on the uh, Las Vegas history page? It's it's, it's uh, thirty six hundred plus. In fact, it, please, it's a it's a it's a private group, as as you know, with Facebook groups. A lot of them are private just to keep advertisers from spamming it. But but please, anybody who wants to join, I'll I'll definitely accept in, anybody as members. And and so the ton, it, 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 there's constant traffic on those sites. It's a lot of fun. Pictures. People will throw old pictures up of the strip of yeah. things their parents took pictures of. And in fact if I'm not mistaken, isn't there a picture in the mob museum of uh, what's the story on your, uh, yeah, the, the picture of your house. Cause put that on that. Page. What's the story <laughs> on that? I, yeah, I'll put, I'll post that. So the story is my aunt, um, was dating a, uh, FBI agent at the time by the name of Mark Casper, who was involved in the investigation with the mob. And he's the one that actually arrested Tony Spilatro and his handcuffs that he arrested Spilatro are on display at the mob museum. And uh, I used to be a member of, of the Mob Museum and going to be rejoining again here. And I was in there one day and I saw this picture of Mark Casper. And I'm like, that picture was taken in my living room or my living room as a child here in Las Vegas. Show the picture to some family members and they all cracked up because it was in our living room at one of our houses here in Las Vegas back in the 80s when Mark came over with my aunt and somebody snapped a photo. And how he got it or how it ended up with the mob. I have no idea. But as soon as I saw it, I'm like, I know that couch. I know that wall. I know exactly where that's at. That's from my house. So, uh, yeah, there's a, a little piece of, of, uh, uh, history for my family in the mob museum, unfortunately, or fortunately. So, so, so the handcuffs yeah. that, that he used to arrest Spilatro, it's the picture of him in your house. The yes. FBI yeah, the FBI agent Mark Casper was taken on our sofa and in our in our living room. I don't know who took the photo. I don't know. I don't. I have. I saw it. I'm like, wait a minute. I know that house. Well, so, maybe your house was bugged. No, it could have been. Who knows? But uh, yeah, and the Mob Museum, like we said before, is is a great place. I have a lot of things to offer. Again, I, I highly suggest that uh, people uh, get out there and, and take a look at that. Last thing, uh, Larry, before we wrap up here is. What's your feeling on, and the mob is big again, like the stories, and it seems like it's at a, I shouldn't say an all-time high, but it's definitely ramped up. Do you feel like it's because the generations are passing stories on to the younger generations, and they're getting interested, and now they want to know more about the mob? I think so. When I, when I was, uh, I was managing editor of a television station, the CBS affiliate up in Northwest Arkansas, we had a, we had a, a, a chart, it showed live real time the click you got on your website for stories that you put up on your news site for the for the television station always tommy weather was always big of course non-weather stories it was always the crime stories it's huge when you look at shows on television the whether it's the datelines or the or the uh uh, uh drama shows it, people can't get enough of crime so i think what may be happening and 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 I'm sure you have better insight than I do on it, given, you know, you know, a lot of the same thing people I do in Las Vegas and a lot of the places. I think what may be happening, my gosh, you've got, you know, clearly this, the Godfather in the 70s, the Sopranos. I think this revival, the Irishman last year came out, 
You've got the Many Saints of Newark coming out next year, which is a Sopranos prequel. Netflix, all the streaming services are just blowing up mob stuff. And tell me what you think. I think what might be happening is a lot of people, when you look at Las Vegas, there aren't many people like you around who are who are longtime Las Vegans. You graduated from high school in Las Vegas. So there are so many new people. They hear these stories. They saw the Joe Pesci, Robert De Niro, Sharon Stone characters. They see the movies. They now, now a new generation, I think, is coming in and is wondering about these people. Who was Tony Spilatro? Who was Frank? Where was the stardust? I know I hear that all the time from people. Did you ever go to the Sands? The whole Frank Sinatra Rat Pack era. I just think, you know, people now who didn't know, who weren't there for all that, are really curious about it. And same with New York or Chicago. And, you know, Netflix has that Fear City uh, a series out about the New York Five families. I just think there's a ton of interest in a revival of interest because a whole new group of people, I think, in addition to people who've always been interested in it. You go to these Facebook pages like our, our Las Vegas Mafia History Group, and, and there's just so much old and new conversation about it. I, do you think, Tommy, that's what it is? That I agree. Revived interest? Yeah, and it, and I agree that revived interest is exactly where it's coming from what you said. Also, I think part of it is people want to know where these places were, like as you mentioned, because I get that every now and then. Hey, did you ever hear of the frontier? I'm like, yeah, I used to go to the frontier. And then I'll mention, you know, castaways, and they'll like, yeah, castaways. I'm like, actually, that was the first one imploded. Was the castaways <laughs> when the first mega resort was the Mirage that went up? Castaways was the first one to come down, and that kind of started everything, you know, from different properties being, you know, emptied out and imploded, but. I think people want to know what, where it was and how, and what it did look like and what happened in those days. I actually have a book in my living room, um, called Las Vegas then and now, and I can't remember how many years ago it's been in print, but it's great because it shows you those places like the dunes and what it was and then Bellagio today. So it gives you then and now, so you can kind of see what the differences were, but I think there's a big interest in because of all the stuff on Netflix and because of all the streaming things out there and the podcast, and this is kind of the new thing now for this era. Now they're intrigued. And when they get intrigued, they want to know more. And was this stuff real or is it just, you know, is people making up stories, but you know, the mob's not something that was made up. I mean, there might be some stories that have been exaggerated over the years, but for the most part, the stories are themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's why the mob museum is so popular. I mean, it's, you know, as you said, earlier when we were talking, if you haven't been to the mob museum, it's unbelievable. And as is their website, by the way. Yeah. Larry, next time you're in Vegas, let me know. I'll take you out to uh, reflection Bay out there at Lake Las Vegas. We'll either uh, grab a bite to eat, go out in the golf course, whatever you want. It'll be on me for those people out there. Reflection Bay golf club is located in the heart of beautiful Lake Las Vegas. Go to reflectionbaygolf.com. That's reflectionbaygolf.com. It's a top 100 course. The public can play. It's a Jack Nicholas prestige signature design that played host to the Wendy's three tour challenge from 1998 to 2007 and look forward to uh, getting together with you someday and uh, talking uh, some more mob because you know, we could spend hours on this. If we, we didn't even scratch the surface on this stuff today. We could keep going. It's been an honor to be on Tommy. I really appreciate it. No one problem. I appreciate you taking time to be on everybody else. If you'd like to ask a question to somebody like Larry or myself, 
go to our website, beforethelightspod.com, and then you can click on the Patreon page. That's also get your name shouted out like we did earlier in the show to our new Patreon guest. You can ask a question. We'll get you on the show. For show notes, go to our website, click on episodes. I'll have links to everything in the show notes Larry and I talked about today. Follow us on Instagram at Before the Lights Podcast. Thank you for listening to Before the Lights. I'm Tommy Canale. Until next time, everybody, a salute, a chin chin. <laughs> <laughs>